When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canada, A Yearly Journey. Today we're looking at 1892. On March 7th, Andrew Wetmore passed away at the age of 71. He was born on August 16, 1820, and would enter politics in 1865 with his election to the New Brunswick Colonial Legislature as an anti-Confederate. When he wasn't appointed as the Attorney General for the party, his opposition to Confederation declined quickly, and he crossed the floor to join the Confederation Party, which became the government in 1866. When New Brunswick joined Canada in 1867, many prominent New Brunswick politicians took roles in the House of Commons, allowing Wetmore to assume leadership of the party, becoming the first Premier of New Brunswick in 1867. He would serve until May 25, 1870. Under his Premiership, he would provide financial extensions to rail lines in the province, incorporate the College of St. Joseph, and would grant full property rights to all married women living apart from, or had been deserted by, their husbands. On March 18, 1892, Governor-General Lord Stanley sent the following message to the three-time champion Ottawa Hockey Club, who were celebrating at the Russell House Hotel in Ottawa. I have for some time been thinking that it would be a good thing if there were a Challenge Cup, which should be held from year to year by the champion hockey team in the Dominion of Canada. There does not appear to be such an outward sign of championship at present, and considering the general interest which matches now elicit, and the importance of having the game played fairly and under rules generally recognized, I am willing to give a cup which shall be held from year to year by the winning team. The cost of the decorative punch bowl would be $48, or about $1,400 today. He then had the words Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup engraved on the outside rim with From Stanley of Preston. Of course, now we know it as the Stanley Cup, a priceless part of Canada. On April 8th, Gladys Louise Smith would be born in Toronto, better known as Mary Pickford, and for a time she was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Called the Queen of the Movies, she was one of the earliest stars to be billed under her own name and was nicknamed America's Sweetheart, even though she was Canadian. The family was involved in acting from an early age, and after Pickford's father left the family, her mother began to take in boarders to pay the bills. One boarder was Mr. Murphy, who was a stage manager for the Cummings Stock Company, and he gave Pickford her first acting role. By the early 1900s, the family was touring the United States, performing in small theatre companies, and after six years of barely making ends meet, Pickford landed a supporting role in 1907's Broadway play, The Warrens of Virginia. 
It was in this play that Gladys became Mary Pickford. In 1909, she screen-tested for director D.W. Griffith for a role in Pippa Passes. She didn't get the role, but she began to act in films on a regular basis. Pickford would say of acting at that time, I played a scrub woman and secretaries and women of all nationalities. I decided that if I could get into as many pictures as possible, I'd become known and there would be a demand for my work. On June 24, 1916, she signed a contract that gave her full authority over production of the films she was in, and she was earning $10,000 per week, or $237,000 per week today. She also received compensation of half of the film's profits with a guarantee of $1 million, which would be about $18.5 million today. In 1919, she founded United Artists with D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, and her husband, Douglas Fairbanks. She would continue to be extremely popular throughout the 1920s, but with the advent of sound, her career declined as she underestimated the value of sound in movies. Nonetheless, she won an Academy Award for Best Actress in 1929. She would retire from film acting in 1933 after several film failures and would perform on stage occasionally before becoming the Vice President of United Artists in 1936. She spent most of the rest of her life at her home called Pickfair Manor, an 18-acre estate she bought with her then-husband, Douglas Fairbanks, in the 1920s. She would typically receive visitors in the 1960s, speaking to them by telephone from her bedroom. When she received an Academy Award Honorary Award in 1976, the Academy TV crew recorded her thank you from her home in Pickfair. Mary, I present this to you with great pride and with the love and admiration of the whole Academy. That's wonderful. You made me very, very happy. And thank you. Well, it's nice to see another, isn't it? It certainly is. He hasn't changed very much in all this time, has he? Well, I hope not. No, he hasn't. <laughs> he hasn't. There have been a lot of him made, and a lot of marvelous actors and actresses have won him. And it, it, it's only proper that finally he's come back to you again. Well, it's very nice to be able to thank them all, and especially you. Thank you. And you, for all you've contributed to this great industry of ours. I shall treasure it always. In the last years of her life, she made arrangements with the Canadian Department of Citizenship to acquire Canadian citizenship because her wish was, in her words, to die as a Canadian. She would pass away on May 29, 1979 in Santa Monica. On April 17th, Alexander Mackenzie, the second Prime Minister of Canada, would pass away at the age of 70. He had been born in Scotland on January 28, 1822, and after leaving school at the age of 13, he trained as a stonemason and immigrated to Canada when he was 19, settling in what would become Ontario. He eventually became interested in politics, and in 1861 he was elected to the Legislative Assembly of the Province of Canada. A supporter of Canadian Confederation, he would be elected to the House of Commons in 1867, and in 1873 became the leader of the Liberal Party and the leader of the official opposition. 
few months later, after Sir Johnny Macdonald and his party were hit with the Pacific Scandal, Alexander Mackenzie became the Prime Minister of Canada. Then, in 1874, his Liberals won a majority government. Due to his humble background and democratic tendencies, he was very popular with the public. His democratic ideals were shown when he refused the offer of a knighthood three times, something other Prime Ministers, including those who only served a few months, gladly took advantage of. Another story of his working-class background comes from when he was touring Fort Henry as Prime Minister. He asked a soldier with him if he knew how thick the wall was. The soldier did not know, and Mackenzie stated, I do. It is 5 feet 10 inches. I know, because I built it myself. As Prime Minister, he would establish the Supreme Court of Canada and the Royal Military College. He would establish the District of Kiowatan and the future Manitoba, but he would make little progress in getting the Transcontinental Railway built. In 1878, his government suffered a terrible defeat as Macdonald and his government rose back into prominence. He would continue to serve as a leader of the party, though, and the opposition until 1880, and he would remain a member of the House of Commons until 1892, when he passed away from a stroke. In the study of the first 20 Prime Ministers of Canada, Mackenzie ranked 11th. Several places are named for Mackenzie as well, including the Mackenzie Mountain Range, Mount Mackenzie, several buildings, schools, and the Mackenzie Building at the Royal Military College of Canada. On May 3rd, Jacob Veneer was born in Montreal. He would earn his undergraduate degree from McGill University in 1914 and would go on to Harvard to earn his PhD in economics. He would serve as a professor at the University of Chicago from 1916 to 1917 and from 1919 to 1946 while also teaching at Stanford and Yale. He would teach at Princeton from 1946 until his death in 1970. For a time, he was advisor to the Secretary of the Treasury during the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He is also considered to be the founder of the concept of nuclear deterrence. At the Conference of Atomic Energy Control in 1945, he stated the atomic bomb was the cheapest way devised of killing human beings and that the atomic bomb will be peacemaking in effect. On May 24th, Sir Alexander Campbell would pass away in Toronto at the age of 70. Born on March 9, 1822 in England, he came to Canada when he was a baby with his doctor father. In 1858, he was elected to the Legislative Council, serving until 1867. He would attend the Charlottetown Conference and the Quebec Conference, and is considered a father of Confederation. In 1867, he would be appointed to the Senate of Canada, serving until 1887. That year, he became the 6th Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, serving from 1887 until his death. On June 29th, something that was oddly common during the early years of British Columbia happened. John Robson would pass away in office as Premier of the province. He had got his finger caught in the door of a carriage while in England and would contract blood poisoning and die in London. Serving as the ninth Premier of British Columbia from August 2nd, 1889 to June 29th, 1892, he'd actually taken over from Alexander Davy, who had also died in office. During his 10 years Premier, he would enable homesteading, get a dry dock constructed near Victoria, and in 1886, before he was Premier, he was the one who had the legislature name the new community of Vancouver in honour of the explorer who had visited the area the previous century. On July 2nd, Theodore Davy would take over as Premier of British Columbia. He was the brother of Alexander Davy, and unlike the two other Premiers, he did not die in office. He would serve until March 2nd, 1895, and during that time was instrumental in approving the construction of the legislative buildings in Victoria instead of moving the capital to the mainland. On July 8th, the Great Fire of 1892 would destroy two-thirds of St. John's, Newfoundland. 
The worst disaster to ever hit St. John's, it would begin at 4.45pm when a dropped pipe in the stable of Timothy O'Brien began the fire, but several things would happen that would cause the fire to begin to rage out of control. Reverend Moses Harvey, who saw the fire in its initial stages, stated that it was a bad day for a fire. On that day, a high wind was blowing from the northwest, and as the fire began to grow, sparks flew out onto the shingled roofs that had not seen rain for a month. The tinder-like conditions on the roofs quickly caused the buildings to go up in flames, sending more sparks into the air, setting more places on fire. On that same day, work was being done on the water mains, which caused water service to be interrupted or pressure to be down. Water service was established at 3pm that day, but the water pressure could not push the water up to the higher sections of the city where the fire had actually begun. Within an hour, it was realized the fire cannot be contained, and people began to put valuables and themselves into stone buildings, like the Anglican Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. The fire would soon spread to that building, destroying it completely. It would be described by W.J. Kent as such. With one fearful rush, the demonic fire seized upon the doomed cathedral, and sooner than tongue could tell the immense edifice, a gem of Gothic architecture, a masterpiece of Sir Gilbert Scott and the pride of every Newfoundlander, was a seething mass of flame. With a crash, heard even above the din of the elements, the roof fell in, and the result of the labors of offerings of thousands for many years vanished in a cloud of smoke and dust. The fire then spread to Water Street, the commercial center of the city. Reverend Harvey would say, The beautiful shops, full of valuable goods, the stores behind, containing thousands of barrels of flour and provisions of all kinds, the fish stores, the wharves, which had cost immense sums to erect, disappeared one by one into the maw of the destroyer. The whole of Water Street on both sides was swept in the besom of destruction. Throughout the night and into the morning, the fire raged. By the next light, the city was a smoldering ruin, Kent would say. A walk through the deserted streets demonstrated that the ruin was even more complete than seemed possible at first. Of the whole easterly section, scarcely a building remained. In total, the disaster resulted in $13 million in damages, or $370 million today. Less than half of those losses were covered by insurance, and huge amounts of money came in from England, the United States, and Canada to help. Over the next few years, most of the city would be rebuilt and most of the present-day registered heritage structures in the city were built or rebuilt after 1892. The fire would also result in a complete reorganization of the fire department, and by the end of 1895, the city had 22 paid firefighters and three new fire stations throughout the city. On July 9th, Parliament would pass the Criminal Code 1892, which is the first unified criminal law in Canadian history under the direction of the Minister of Justice. The act was sponsored by Sir John Sparrow David Thompson, and was based on the Stephen Code written by Sir James Fitzjames Stephen for a royal commission in 1879 in England. The new code would oust from Canadian criminal law any offence under an act of the British Parliament unless the act was applicable to Canada. It also stated that no juvenile under the age of 7 could be convicted, and those that were between the age of 7 and 13 could only be convicted if they were competent to know the nature and consequences of the conduct. On August 2nd, Jack Warner was born in London, Ontario. He would move with his family to Youngston, Ohio in 1896, where his father established a shoe repair shop. It was there he began to sing at a local theatre and performed in vaudeville. During this time, he began working with his brother Sam to show early films including The Great Train Robbery. In 1910, the brothers pooled their resources and formed a film production company called Warner Brothers. 
Over the next decade and more, the brothers would build their film production company into a dominant force in Hollywood. They would procure the technology to make the first talking picture, the jazz singer, and Warner was known for his shrewd instincts and tough-mindedness. Warner would continue to lead the company and would be a force in the motion picture industry until 1973 when he retired due to his failing health, and he would pass away on September 9, 1978 at the age of 86. In 2004, he was given a star on Canada's Walk of Fame, and today he's considered to be the person who shaped Hollywood's golden age. On August 16th, Hal Foster would be born in Halifax. He would work as a staff artist for the Hudson's Bay Company in Winnipeg before riding his bicycle to Chicago in 1919 and studying at the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts. In 1929, he began to make the Tarzan comic strip adapted from the novels of the same name. In 1937, he premiered Prince Valiant, which became a huge success and ran for 4,000 Sunday strips and appeared in more than 300 American newspapers at its height. It was so popular that the Duke of Windsor called it the greatest contribution to English literature in the past hundred years. Foster would continue to draw for the strip until 1971, and the strip runs to this day under other artists. At the age of 73, he was elected to the membership in the Royal Society of Arts, a rare honor given to someone living in the United States. His work would influence many comic artists including Jack Kirby and Bob Kane, and he would pass away in 1982. In 1996, he was inducted into Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame, and in 2005 was inducted into the Joe Schuster Canadian Comic Hall of Fame. Clint Benedict was born in Ottawa on September 26th. Benedict played hockey on the local waterways of the area until he made a senior hockey debut with the Ottawa Stewartons in the Ottawa City League in 1909. In 1910, his skill as a goaltender had him in high demand, and he would move over to the Ottawa New Edinburgh of the Interprovincial Amateur Hockey Union. At the same time, he was making a name for himself by playing for the Ottawa Stars Lacrosse Club, picking up a city championship in 1911. He would eventually play professionally for the Ottawa Capitals Lacrosse Club, which allowed him to hone his hockey skills through the summer. In 1912-13, Benedict joined the Ottawa Senators, but only played 10 games that season. When Ottawa joined the NHL, Benedict went with the team and earned himself the nickname of Praying Benny. This was because of his habit of dropping to his knees to make a save, something not allowed in hockey at the time. On February 1, 1917, the Vancouver Sun reported, Clint Benedict is laid up. Always thought he would injure his knees while dropping to the ice so frequently. Benedict would often try to bend the rule relating to making a save by having his feet leave the ice, he would say years later. What you had to be is sneaky. You'd make a move, fake losing your balance or footing, and put the official on a spot. Did I fall or did I intentionally go down? It was fun because you were playing games with the officials. Through the next few seasons, Benedict continued to dominate the net, often keeping Ottawa in games they should have lost. On October 20, 1924, Benedict was signed by the Montreal Maroons after the Senators released him. In his time with the Senators, Benedict had won the team three Stanley Cups in 1919-20, 1920-21, and 1922-23. His best season with the team was 1919-20 when he had 19 wins and only five losses. In 1930, three decades before Jacques Plante changed hockey with his goalie mask, Benedict wore a mask and became the first goalie to wear facial protection in the NHL. On January 7, 1930, he had been hit in the face by a shot by Howie Morenz, which broke the bridge of his nose and knocked him out. He retired the following season from hockey. In his career, he had 53 wins and 26 losses in the NHA, and in the NHL, he recorded 190 wins and 143 losses. His career goals against average was 2.32 along with 57 shutouts, and his best season for shutouts was 1926-27 when he had 13. 
In 28 Stanley Cup playoff games, he had 9 shutouts. In 1965, well after he was eligible, Benedict was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's possible that his drinking early in his career delayed his induction. And on November 12, 1976, he would pass away at the age of 84. On November 24th, Sir John Abbott resigned as Prime Minister of Canada. He became Prime Minister after the sudden death of Sir John A. Macdonald, and Abbott had served from June 16, 1891 to November 24, 1892. In his short time as leader of Canada, he attempted to negotiate a new treaty with the United States, but failed to reach an agreement. Then, on December 5th, Sir John Sparrow David Thompson, the former Justice Minister, would become Prime Minister. He too would serve only a short period of time, but he was the first Roman Catholic to hold the position. He served until December 12, 1894, when he went on a trip to England and died from a massive heart attack at the age of only 49. This resulted in Canada seeing two of its past three Prime Ministers die in office. Thompson would be the last Prime Minister today to die in office. And while he would be Prime Minister for only a short period of time, he nearly negotiated the admittance of Newfoundland and the Confederation, but in the end that failed, and it would not be until 1949 that Newfoundland joined Canada. On December 14th, Adam George Archibald would pass away at the age of 78. Born in Nova Scotia on May 3rd, 1814, he would become known as a father of Confederation for his support of Confederation. He would be elected to the House of Commons from 1869 to 1870, and again from 1888 to 1891. In that gap, he became the first Lieutenant Governor of the Northwest Territories, and the first Lieutenant Governor of Manitoba, serving in both positions simultaneously from May 20th, 1870 to December 2nd, 1872. He then served as the 4th Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia from 1873 to 1883. Several events would happen this year that don't have specific dates. The Toronto Star was founded by Horatio Clarence Hawkin. First printed on the presses of Toronto World, which owned 51% of the newspaper, the paper did poorly at first in the first few years, but it would slowly see its influence grow and today is still around and enjoys a circulation of 193,000 on weekdays and 290,000 on Saturdays. It currently ranks second to the Globe and Mail for circulation in Canada. Also in 1892, John Ware married Mildred Lewis, daughter of a black homesteader in the area. They were married in the First Baptist Church of Calgary. The Calgary Tribune at the time reported its heartfelt congratulations, noting that probably no man in the district has a greater number of warm personal friends than the groom. This year also saw the first documented women's ice hockey game, which took place in Barrie, Ontario on an outdoor ice rink. And lastly, this year in May, ground broke on the Chateau Frontenac. This hotel would become the shining jewel of the CPR, and it was here both the Quebec conferences were held in the Second World War, and for a time it was the tallest building in Quebec. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at 1892. Next week, we're going to look at 1893. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes.